your reality is spiritual. His truth is his truth. And if we can align with God's reality, we will finally be living by reality. You know what we're going to do coming up? I have like, I didn't count. I have like 30 pages of notes here. Now, I'm not going to do that <laughs> to you. <laughs> but I just want you to know that this is what the Lord's put on my heart. He is moving us somewhere very specific. But he wants to give us some spiritual competences because he is stirring things up in the spirit and he is doing things. Now, you know from the last few weeks that where the messages have been leading, which I really kind of didn't expect, but it's where we're at, we're looking at the fact that there is a very real resistance against those who have sanctifying faith. Faith that you are called that God has given you an identity and he calls you to amazing powerful things to accomplish to advance the kingdom of God and there is a very real resistance to that we're going to be looking for that for a while I don't know how long we're going to get through at least this much stuff and whatever God keeps giving me and we're just going to see how far we get and let the spirit do what he wants to do now I'll tell you one truth that will change your life and I know that you know this already. What I mean by one truth that will change your life, I mean when you really start to get a sense of the reality of this in your life, is that you're not just made by God. Okay, not that that's not spectacular. That is spectacular. You're made by God. But see, there's more. You're not randomly made by God. You are designed by God. Do you understand the difference? You can make something... And you are made by design. The thing about design is that it necessarily means that there is a purpose. Right? If you were going to set out to build a building or something and you didn't start with a blueprint, you probably would not end up with a building that suits the purpose that the building is for. And you, as the house of God, each one of you, uniquely, have an identity that was designed. It's designed by God, right? And that necessarily means that there's purpose. So you're looking at Solomon's temple. This is obviously a building that is designed for purpose. And it's the dwelling place. The reason it's a building designed for worship is because it is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God. But you see, it had to have details. It had to have particular courts, particular chambers with particular instruments so that it could be the dwelling place of the Spirit of God, right? And you all who have been with us, you've heard me say, this is a self-portrait. That temple, because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? That's a self-portrait. And see, that's design. That's design, and design necessarily means purpose. So we're going to start there. And you know we've been going through stories of laying new foundations. God is doing new things in your life, corporately in the church and throughout the world. You can just watch the news and you know that God is establishing new foundations for powerful things around the world. This is the season. Better hang on. And there's, there's an adversary. When God's doing new things, you, you better believe when God is stirring up new things in the Spirit, the enemy is also stirring up. The resistance to those powerful things is stirring up. So here's the thing. We can do two things. We can overemphasize our focus on the enemy. 
And that wouldn't be healthy. I don't recommend that. God says, I'm capable. You focus on me. You worship me and I will do it. You don't have to fear. You don't have to go around all the time just worrying about the enemy all the time. We're not going to do that, right? But the other thing that we can do is also ignore it and kind of be uninformed about who our enemy is and what his strategies are. You see, you never go into battle. I'm not a good historian. In fact, I'm terrible at history. Except for like, I'm fascinated with the Bible, so I do okay there sometimes. But mostly I'm not a historian. But you could look across history and you would never find someone who was successful in battle that didn't put in effort to understand the enemy they come against and make a strategy that matches. We're going to do some of that. So we've been looking at the three stories. We're really going to focus on the third one that we've only scratched, which is the coolest because the third one is Jesus. Okay, So finally, right? Let's look at Jesus. And this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we've said this almost every week. I believe I've said this. Even Jesus followed the pattern of his father to start into ministry, to go into the powerful things that were planned for him. He did not violate his father's pattern for the establishment of new things for the reign of God being established in a ministry. Okay, so go with me to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. And here's where we're going to start with Jesus. So we're just going to establish some context, okay? And then we're going, to, we're going to look at some amazing things. Here's the context. Jesus was just baptized by John the Baptist. The Spirit descended like a dove. The Father spoke, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And so what happens just next in verse 1 is it says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. So look, there's a lot going on in the context here that, that is going to actually be a foundation for the next at least two, probably three or maybe more weeks. So I want to look at this. The first thing to notice is that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Even God as man was led by the Spirit. Now look, where was he led? He was led into the wilderness. Now, you probably know this, but just in case, you know, wilderness and desert, they're the same thing. And scripturally, biblically, they are always the place of trial and testing and proving. So who does it? The Spirit leads you there purposely. <laughs> okay, He does things on purpose. Purposely leads you to the place of trial and temptation and testing. And it, as if it's not enough, as if it's not clear right there, it already says, into the wilderness. So we know it's that place of testing and temptation. It goes on and states the purpose. It says, to be tempted by the devil. It's actually the purpose. It's the reason the Spirit leads Jesus into that place. To be tempted by the devil. It states it right there. And then, one more thing about the context, it also says that he's, this is a 40-day fast. He does a 40-day fast. And it goes on and says, afterward, he was hungry. Now in our culture, we might kind of scratch our head and go, well, of course he was hungry. It was a 40-day fast. Because you see, fasting is kind of a lost discipline. 
in American Christianity right now, but it is throughout the Scriptures. It is one of the very powerful spiritual disciplines. And if we were well acquainted with it, which I'm sure some of you are, you know that like within three to five days during a fast, hunger actually subsides. It's not like you're plagued with hunger for a solid 40 days. And at some point, your body finally reaches the point where the fast is complete, which is usually around 40 days, and hunger returns. Suddenly your body says, I'm hungry. And it kind of usually denotes that this is the end of the fast. It's been accomplished. So that's our context for several weeks, probably. The first place I want to start today is I want to identify the resistance. I want to look at our enemy. So I don't get the impression that it's true for a lot of you, but some like to actually believe that the enemy's not even real. Well, it's a conceptual evil or something. But the, the scripture names him here, okay? It says, tempted by the devil. Okay, that's a being, and he is real. And I want to show you powerful things that the scripture tells us about who is our enemy. You see, if we're going to be in a battle, a resistance that wants to keep you from your designed purpose, to keep you from your fulfillment and the advancement of the kingdom of God, we might as well know something about who that resistance is and their strategy. So look, the first thing I want to do is show you that this word devil that occurs here in verse 1 also occurs in verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city. And it goes on. It also occurs in verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. And it goes on. This word is the Greek diabolos. And it literally translates as false accuser or slanderer. Now this is in his name. Okay, we're not even really talking strategy yet. But you're beginning to see who he is and so therefore what his strategy is going to be. It's also going to be true against you, right? Not just Jesus, because Jesus is in you. You are carrying the same kingdom. False accuser, slanderer. So just hold that, and I want to look at one more name, and this is going to lead somewhere. In Matthew 4, verse 3, it gives another name for him. It says, now when the tempter came to him, he said. This is a different word. Okay, This is pirazzo, tempter, pirazzo. This translates as enticer, examiner, tester. Okay, so in the identity of this adversary of yours, he attempts to examine, to test, or entice you in the spirit of who he is, which is a slanderer and a false accuser. He wants to slander you. Now, if you're unclear, this is going to become really clear as we move forward. To make this clear, go with me to Job. And we're going to go right to chapter 1. Job, we've done this before, months and months ago, just briefly. But the book of Job here gives us a glimpse into how this works in the Spirit. And I want to see this again, starting in verse 6. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. These sons of God, the scholars tell us, and if you study this, you find that these are angels, okay? In other words, it's saying this is the day that's appointed for angels to come and present themselves, give their reports before the Lord. And it says, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, 
from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth. Now, to help us make this make sense, we're going to look at 1 Peter 5.8, but keep your finger where you're at if you're turning in Job. This is going to give us an insight. You see, the Lord knows exactly what He's coming to do with His report when He says, I'm going to and fro on the earth. I've been walking back and forth on it. Here in 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober. This is instructions to believers, right? Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, that's Diabolos, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You see, when he's walking to and fro on the earth, that's what he's doing. He's seeking someone to slander or falsely accuse. Who can I devour? Okay, And the Lord knows this. So if you're wondering if I'm right, go back into Job with me and look at verse 8. and You're going to see that the Lord knows this in this conversation in the throne room of heaven. In verse 8 it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Why would he do that? He would do that. See, he's right there in the conversation. He would do that because he knows that Satan was roaming, looking for who to accuse, right? So he says, have you considered my servant Job? Now what I want you to notice is what you're going to see next is God declaring true things about Job. Now I have an assignment for you. As we read those, I want you to put yourself in Job's shoes because I believe you're going to find that they are the same things that God says about you. Are you ready? Here we go. So this is what he said. Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And look, I know some of you just struggled with that because you're sitting there going, ha ha, you don't know me. Is that really what you think? <laughs> no, but I want to tell you something. It's true about you and that is what God says about you. You have to know the Scriptures that say that you have been made the righteousness of God. That you're upright and blameless. That you stand before God without blemish because of what Jesus has done for you. Not because you can accomplish that, but you see, these are true about you because Jesus made it true about you. And that's what's declared about you in the throne room of heaven. Okay? So God says the same things about you. Now you're getting a glimpse at what happens in the courts of heaven. God is declaring these things about you. And then your enemy says in verse 9, this is Satan's response. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? What's he about to do? What's his name? He's about to falsely accuse. He's about to slander in the court. And he's about to begin to take God's permission to take Job into a wilderness to begin to test out and prove that his slander is true. Now here's the slander. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. There's the enemy's slander. Now you have an identical court case going on about you right now in the courts of heaven. The reason it's going on about you right now in the courts of heaven is because you are Jesus's. And you remember a couple of weeks ago I asked you, stand up if you believe God is moving you into new powerful things, and you all stood. That means your case is open. And you've got an adversary that wants to come against it. 
Okay, and he's slandering like this. Now, you all probably know Job's story well enough to know that he does not do a perfect job. You read a lot of Job and you find out that um, he does his share of grumbling. He, he goes through his share of confusions. He does not do a perfect job. But do you know what he does succeed in doing? You never see Job curse God. Now, I want to show you something critical, and this is true in your life. Your trials and temptations that God allows for your proving, because He wants you to end up more powerful. He is making you more powerful for Him. He allows it. But they are specific to you. They are specific provings that God wants to become a stronghold for His Holy Spirit in your life. You see that? And that's true in Job. It was a specific false accusation. The accusation was He will curse you to your face if you withdraw your hand of blessing. If you strike Him, if He gets sick, if His blessings get hurt, He'll curse you. But even though Job does a lot of things very imperfectly, he never curses God. He passes the slander that's being tested in the courts of heaven. You see that. And you know how Job ends up. Far more blessed than where he starts at the beginning of the story. Far more established. Now I know a lot of you are going through stuff. I'm hearing what you're going through. And I'm praying for you. But I want to tell you something. It is the Spirit of God that leads you into the wilderness. Into the place of trial, of testing, of pain, of temptation. All of those things. The Spirit of God does it because He's crazy about you. Because He loves you. And He does have plans to bring you to a more powerful, more established place of the reign of God inside you. Because He wants you to participate in the powerful things that He's going to do. Amen? Are you going? Do you want that? Okay. That means there's seasons of wilderness <laughs> along the way. And they're totally worth it because He's faithful to finish the work that He begins in you. Okay, now let's go back to Jesus. So we know our context. He's been led by the Spirit to be tempted. And here's the first temptation. We're just going to start looking at it this week. There's so much gold. You could meditate on Matthew chapter 4, verses 2-4 through 4, for like three years and never finish being blessed by it. <laughs> That's the truth. But So we're just going to scratch it. We're probably going to talk about it more next week. So here in verse 2, it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So the first thing I want you to know is that the enemy will and does take advantage of your condition. Or he will try. He will try. <laughs> and Jesus is hungry. So we know one thing. This temptation is a temptation that's going to come at the level of the flesh. Bodily appetite, of which we have many. Our biology screams for things. And the enemy will try to use what your biology screams for. He's doing that with Jesus here. But I want to show you something far more profound. Verse 3, it says, Now when he, the tempter, what was that? The tester, the examiner, the enticer. Okay? came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, you hear that? 
If you are the son of God, so this is what I really want you to see, okay? The enemy tries this on us every day, all the time. He never stops trying this. On Jesus, he did it to Jesus, and he does it to you. His temptation, his trial, comes at the place of your identity. Who you are, God's design in you, is your identity. Who you are is what you are going to do, is your purpose in the kingdom. You see, it's identity. God puts identity in us, and it is out of that that the power of the Spirit, that the reign of the kingdom of God is established in this place. So the enemy attacks at the place of our identity, our design, who we are. If you are the Son of God, that's how the tempter starts. Now, just in case, you probably are right on top of it, because I know how smart y'all are. But just in case you're missing it, who else is a son of God? So you can easily put yourself in this story, right? The enemy says exactly the same thing to you. If you are truly a son of God, then fill in the blank. Well, let's fill in the blank here. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So now look, of course it's because he's hungry, right? I mean, the temptation makes sense because he's hungry and he's saying, if you're the son of God, then what's he saying? Abuse your power outside of the will of God and use it to selfishly meet your bodily appetites, right? Because if you're the son of God, you'd have no problem doing this. He wants to take advantage of the hunger, of course. It's an attack that comes at the level of the flesh. But I want to show you something far more profound that I believe is going to bless you far more. This also is at the core of Jesus' identity. You understand the entire purpose of Jesus' life was to turn stones into bread. Are you familiar with this? Let's read some things. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Here it's speaking about Jesus and it says, Coming to Him... As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. Now it's going to start quoting a Scripture. It says, Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. Now listen. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Now I'm going to show you something. Even in the temptation from Satan to turn these stones into bread, Satan wants to insert shame at the place of Jesus' primary identity, who he is, the Son of God, who will naturally flow forth what he is to accomplish, which is to turn stones into bread. You are the living stones. He already had you in mind at this moment. He's going to turn living stones into the bread of life, the bread of which whoever eats of that bread will never hunger again. Not this little hunger at the end of his 40-day fast, but he's turning you into living stones, being built into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, the house of God, so that those who partake of that bread will never hunger again. Do you see what I'm showing you? 
Satan is striking at the core of Jesus' identity. He's not just tempting him to feed his bodily hunger. Now, I'm going to show you something. I told you some profound words. I just kind of (laughs) glazed over them, but I want you to see this. You understand shame is an identity word, right? It's not the same thing as guilt. Guilt is a legal term. Guilt means that you failed at a standard or you violated a law. You're guilty. It's a verdict. Okay? Shame is an identity term. Shame doesn't say, I violated the law. Shame says, I am a violation of the law. Shame doesn't say, I made a mistake. It says, I am a mistake. Right? So what is shame? You know, shame was the first consequence when Adam and Eve fell, right? Shame is the disqualification of your identity. You see why it's so devastating. Shame disqualifies your identity for the purposes that God has planned in your life. If the enemy can place shame at the core of your identity, he won. And that's what he's trying to do right here. He wants to enter shame at the most central core of who Jesus is and so therefore what he's going to accomplish. Turn stones into bread because he's the son of God. You see that? That's the enemy's strategy. Now, I'm going to tell you something. You too are a son of God. You are those living stones being built up, offering the bread of life to the world. He wants to do the same thing to you. Now, I'll tell you something that's true about every trial, every temptation that you face in your life. It is for the proving of you because God is nuts in love with you and He has powerful plans for you. Every one of those temptations is an attempt to bring shame at the place of your core identity, at the highest callings God has planned for you. Every one of them. You see how knowing that is fuel? You see, understand, when you're in a trial and you understand that it's led by the Spirit, that it is for the purpose of the fact that God is faithful to bring you through that wilderness to the other side where the reign of God will now be established where there will be a stronghold in that place that has been proved a stronghold for the Spirit of God. Now, we're only looking at the first temptation. If we had time and we went through all of them, you would find out that the place where Jesus ends is the stronghold of the Holy Spirit of God in this place to accomplish all things for all people, for all time. That's the stronghold that Jesus ends up with. Now look, I know some, just in case we've got to shut the mouth of the enemy here, somebody in here, at least one of you, has got to be beating yourself up and you're thinking, you know what, I do terrible in temptations and trials though. And I've messed it up so many times. Now I want you to know something. Of course, Jesus didn't fail in any of these temptations or trials. He is the perfect spotless lamb that makes it possible for you. And I just want you to know that it's irrelevant. You see, because Jesus made it so that it's different for you. He does want you to more and more and more in your life be passing these tests because He wants to create more and more of a stronghold for the living Spirit of God in you. That's true. And if you're like me, when you screw it up all the time, the blood of Jesus Christ covers it. So no matter what, you still stand there in the throne room of God, washed in the blood, completely spotless, 
completely qualified for every good thing God calls into your life. Amen? Go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 with me. This is declared over you in heaven, and it says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You are a member of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. See that? Turn stones into bread. It's Jesus' core identity to turn stones into bread. You are those stones. You are the stones that feed the world with the only thing that feeds people to where they never hunger for anything again. Okay, back to Matthew chapter 4. Is it okay if I tell your story about conquering fear when God taught you about fear? Okay. Okay, this just came to my mind and I think this is important. So, and I'll get it all, I'll get the details wrong, so this will be frustrating for her, but it's a powerful testimony. So I'm going to tell this. When she was a younger woman, even though she's still so young, <laughs> and this was before we were married, um, she was still a single woman, she was being plagued by fear. I think it was, um, you were looking for your keys, right? She was looking for her keys and she was going to get fired from her job if she didn't find these keys and get to work on time. So she asked God, make sure you correct me if I get this part wrong. So she asked God, so she's on the floor. Do you want to tell this testimony? Okay, I'm going to mess this up. Can I get this microphone? Okay, so about 20 years ago, um, the father must have called my name because my life began to change. So I am back in Kansas City where my family is. I've got a girl roommate instead of a boy, finally. And I've started going to church and I don't know much about God. I have three jobs because I'm trying to survive, right? And it's early morning, and fear had always ruled my life. It had always ruled my life. And so I am up in the morning, I'm trying to get out the door, can't find my car keys, and I am in a panic. And I am just dreading trying to call them and make it okay, and I'm freaking out, and I'm walking through this small apartment, circling, circling, you know, and I can't. And it really was the first time I just asked God a question. (laughs) And I just said, I remember I came around and into the kitchen, the small apartment kitchen, right? And I just said, God, what is the opposite of fear? And he said, it was the first time I ever heard his voice. And he said, the opposite of fear is faith. And I mean to tell you, there was so much peace in this tiny, small kitchen. There was so much peace. And, uh, and I just, I was shocked, you know, <laughs> I was astounded. And I, and I knew that those chains had just dropped off. All that fear, it just dropped. And I walked around back into the living room and to go sit down, because now I'm a little overwhelmed, you know. I'm not scared anymore, but I'm overwhelmed. And I sit down on the couch, and the phone's next to me, and uh, I call my boss. Hey, it's Sandra. I'm going to be late. I'm sorry, you know. And, of course, they're like, no big deal. <laughs> I'm like, shut up, because I've been freaking out for about 30 minutes. And I hang up the phone, And I'm sitting there just amazed at what's just happened. And I look over, and there on the shelf are my keys. And I mean, he wants to deliver us. 
Is that all you want to be share? Beautiful. Yeah. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> now, I think here's the reason that came to my mind. You see, somebody could have told her that the opposite of fear is faith. And it would have done very little. Right? It would not have delivered her from fear. And I want to tell you something. If you want to know a fearless person, <laughs> it's that woman. She's unbelievable. I mean, she, she blows me away. When she knows it's of God, she's utterly fearless. I'm not, that, I'm not necessarily that way, okay? That's Sandra. And the reason is because she went through that. She was in that trial. She went through the proving of that trial. And that was a long season. If she spoke longer and you heard more of the testimony, you'd know that it wasn't just that moment she was fearful. Fear was a stronghold in her life. It was a long trial, right? And then God said it ends now. And it's never come back. When she knows it's of God and she's walking in that, she's utterly fearless. You will never meet a more fearless person in all your life. Because it was proved. It became a stronghold for the Holy Spirit in her life that nobody is ever going to be able to touch. Okay, we'll just begin to wrap up with this. Okay, um, let's just finish this. Let's look at verse 4. And here is Jesus' answer. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I just want to show you something. I want to end on this note. How did Jesus overcome this temptation? Okay, he used God's word. That's good. And we're going to look at that more intensely next week and how the enemy can sling it back. But really what he did, he established, you see, he established a priority in this moment that was obviously already in him, but that he would always live by. And that is, that he is more spiritual than he is physical. That's what was just established. You know what he did? He knew that this was an attack on his identity. He knew what was prophesied by this point concerning him, that he was going to turn living stones into the living bread, not this piddly stuff the enemy's trying to tempt him over, this fleshly stuff. You see, you know what he knew? He knew that he was primarily a spiritual being, body, soul, and spirit, that he had a spiritual mission in this place, just like you have a spiritual mission in this place. That's what he said. Look at what he says. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. You know that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the word of God. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's a spiritual mission that the enemy tried to twist Enter shame at the most core primary thing that Jesus is going to accomplish through his life for you because he loves you like that. He established a priority structure. My spirit and my spiritual mission is my priority. And that's how he overcame it, by the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would begin a season for each one here, for each one who loves you and wants your plans in their life, that you would just begin a season of exposing the enemy and his strategies, that you would bring what's in the dark and begin to just put it in the light so that we see everything that the enemy tries against us. 
I ask that you would create a powerful sense of destiny in every person, that they would understand and that they would intimately know that you have good and significant and powerful plans for them. Lord, I ask that you would begin to reveal identity in clearer, deeper, more powerful ways than you ever have before for this people, that they may see their identity in you, that they may see design in what you're doing and that your power will be released through it the more and more they grow into their identity. Protect them from the evil one. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the faithful one that is going to complete this work, that can bring us through every temptation where we stand on the other side proved with a new stronghold for your spirit. Father, that you would be, that you would be sending your spirit out to make, to make more powerful, deeper strongholds for your spirit in this people that your kingdom would be advanced. And we love you, Jesus. All these things we bring into the throne room in your name and faith. Amen.